Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Sans Pants Radio, Australia's most family-friendly podcast network. Hey everyone, welcome to Bookish. I'm George Demerals. This is a show where we ask you what's your story and what does it say about you. Today on the show, we have a lecturer and literary studies, literary studier at Deakin University, Andrew Dean. He's also written two books, one of them out this year, um, and has a batting average of 25. So, <laughs> welcome to the show. That was maybe a bit generous. I think 25 was me. Uh, gilding the lily slightly and including non-league games. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's right. I would love if someone actually was pedantic enough to chase that up and hold you to account for it. That would be, be fantastic. Uh, but yes, thank you thank you for coming on the show. I managed to butcher that intro even after asking you. Because so, your PhD is in... English. English, okay. Yeah. So so technically, does that make you... That makes you doctor, right? It does. But do not ask me to um, do CPR on a flight. Yeah. I was wondering whether there's like a bit of a social uh, pressure with those situations to play down the doctoriness just because... Obviously, you put all that work into it, but you know the mis- miscalculation people make. Uh, there's a lot of um, there's actually a lot of different views on this. I mean, some people some people feel like that for a long time, especially minority, you know, people who have been marginalised historically, feel like they have worked a long time to have the name to be able to be called doctor, and they want to use it. Some people feel like it's an odd um, kind of you know social um, hierarchy kind of thing. I don't tend to use it, but some people do. Um, it's, it's surprisingly fraught, I would, t- I would say. Yeah, look, actually, in this climate as well, I think a lot of people are like, well, uh, in that, why don't you go get a doctorate in something that helps people or something like that as well? You probably get some of that nonsense. <laughs> yeah, I mean, not least not least from me to myself, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Very, That's a good point as well, yeah. Uh, you got to love biggest critic, eh? Always <laughs> yourself. Yeah, I, have, I you know, not, nothing anybody else could say to me about about doing a PhD in English hasn't already been said to me by me. So, um, yeah, yeah, in much more specifically, <laughs> like br- cutting tones. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> like much more personalized insults. The the shortcomings of my PhD thesis, I've really worked through those ones, um, you know, page by page. So. <laughs> Okay, so yeah, so to give a bit of background, because uh, so you're uh, you're from New Zealand. I am. Yeah, and you grew up there, and then you. So is that where you studied and got your PhD? No, so I did my undergraduate degree in New Zealand at the University of Canterbury, and then I got a scholarship and went to the UK and did my PhD there. All right, where 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 did you do it in the UK? I was at Oxford, so I did a master's and PhD there, and then I was a lecturer for a year at one of the colleges, St John's. And then um, I was a research fellow at University College London. 
uh, for a couple of years. And then I got this job at Deakin, which is um, fantastic. And so I and actually intended to come back as soon as um, my contract started, but then the pandemic happened. Um, and so I had to begin remotely, which is actually okay because Melbourne was in lockdown at the time as well. Yeah, so it was kind of remote for everyone. Yeah. that's um. So I've got to ask because like, this is – I think probably of all romantic association places, I think Oxford might be right up there with the, with the best of them. What was it like studying there? Like as in doing your PhD, that would have been amazing. Especially like, I feel like English PhD there is like, yeah, it sounds very impressive. I mean, I had a really nice time. You know, I had a very, very supportive supervisor and I was really fortunate in the kind of support that the university gave me in various ways. I was a junior dean, which is kind of like a residential advisor kind of situation. Um, and so I was in a, in one of the colleges, Hartford College, for I think it was four years or something, kind of helping with the, you know, on the day-to-day things with undergraduates. And yeah, it was it was pretty good. The other thing is, is, that, is that I guess my PhD was a very global topic. I had a writer from New Zealand, one from the US, one from South Africa, but also kind of topics that range right across Anglophone literature in the 20th century and the library system and also the kind of talks and, you know, the uh, expertise that are in the university just made that so much more possible. Well, you're one of the top universities in the world, right? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's just other nice things about Oxford, which is, is I just had a lot of a lot of friends there, went to the pub, you know, uh, nice summer walks, played a lot of cricket. It was all pretty nice. Yeah, that'd be like, okay, actually, when I visit one time, because I'm a, I'm a big Lord of the Rings fan, so mm. I actually went down and visited uh, Oxford because they had an exhibition on of Tolkien stuff, like right next door. So I actually, was like, oh, I'll go down and check it out anyway. So I went down and just checked out Oxford whilst also going to check out that. It's, it's looked lovely. It looked lovely down there. Like it's just the whole. It's it's like a town focused around the university. So it seems like a really nice vibe. Like if you were there, you really would feel like you're amongst. Yeah. The whole place is kind of structured for the learning, so in that way, it seems. Yeah, it really was. It really was. It, it was kind of funny living in a town that is very popular with tourists. You know, it's very well connected to London, quite close to Heathrow, and so you get a lot of tourists. You know, the day that I went to hand in my PhD, I was walking around with these two big um, volumes. I guess the bound version to my thesis to hand in to the examiners. Kind of nervous because this is the summation of three and a half years' work. And this um, person who's obviously just come in for the day comes up and says, what, what are you doing? Is that is that your PhD? And I said, yeah, yeah. She just grabs it out of my hand and goes, oh, this is really long. They just snatched it out of your hands. Yeah, <laughs> took it out of my hands. I mean, look, it's really hard to get readers for academic work, so maybe I should have been grateful, you know. But <laughs> In that sense, yeah, that's that might forever be about a quarter of the readership <laughs> exactly, of you. Exactly. No, that's 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 a hundred percent of the readership. That's uh, that's it. <laughs> yeah. No, that's a. <laughs> I always did think that though as well about uh yeah uh, living in a towns like that where it's such a tourist destination it would get frustrating because you're just trying to get to class and you just got people everywhere in your way. It sort of modulates throughout the day. Um, from, you know, sort of in the morning, not many people, early morning, in the evening, not so many people. And then during the day, it can be a bit hectic. Mm. Anyway, that's, that, that's a long-winded answer to your question. Long story short, I had a really nice time. <laughs> yeah, okay. As I, as I would hope, yeah. <laughs> and um, I feel like if you're going to do an English doctorate especially, like maybe it's in my head, uh, uh, I've got a romantic notion of it, but I feel like Oxford would really respect it and really be for it in a sense. Yeah, I think that you can find that environment anywhere. I think I was just pretty lucky with a bunch of things that were quite circumstantial. As I said, my supervisor in particular was really 
really supportive and that just um, made the experience you know 10 times better because i I just felt so excited to be doing that work. Uh, well, actually, so what was the thesis? If you can s- summarize it, I'm sure you get a hustle all the time. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's fun. It was basically the first draft of what became my book. It was about self-reflexivity or metafiction, I, uh, writers who are writing about writing um, post-1945. And I looked at three main authors, um, Janet Frame, who's a New Zealander, James Katsia, who's South African, and Philip Roth, who's American. When you say writing about writing, as in like their works, um, while still fiction and a story, are actually on another level about the act of writing. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Yes. It's not like they're writing books on how to write. They're no. Writing books. Their, their, their novels tend to have some element of thinking about the status of writing. Uh, you might have author figures in, in the novels. Um, it was important for me that the writers were career writers. And so sometimes if they had controversial early receptions or they're in a heated political environment, their later novels might respond to their earlier readers in some way. And so there's a a way of thinking about what place literature has in the public that's kind of at the center of the the book. Right. So like as in you you wanted people who uh, had personal awareness of the impact of their works on like and the the impact of other people on their works, like almost that, that. relationship okay yeah what made you want to do that one i guess yeah i have no idea really um <laughs> well, I, let's it, find out today all right andrew let's do it together we'll figure it out <laughs> I, I sort of i did a i did a post-war american literature course when i was um at the university of canterbury and really enjoyed that and there's a lot of um writing about writers who who do this kind of thing um that I was reading and I just found that interesting. And then I read just lots and lots of things that I was enjoying, I guess. And I, I began to reflect on the fact that I felt like there wasn't enough good that had been written about this topic, that the things that I was reading by scholars were dissatisfying. And then I felt like I had a different angle. And it's kind of one of those things that you don't sort of come into a thesis. Well, at least my experience of it, you don't come into a thesis thinking this is exactly what I'm going to do. And then it just comes out. It's sort of like a process instead of attunement where I have these interests and I meet all these other kinds of texts or scholars or thoughts over the course of my research. And the two things could have come together in some way that my interests are shaped by what I'm reading and, and also what I'm, um, what I'm reading is, is kind of, uh, I'm pushing my own work into that in some way. And so I think, my interest in the writers that I looked at was pre-existing. Um, my interest in kind of the philosophy of literature is, in, is pre-existing, but then the way that this worked out was slightly idiosyncratic. Yeah, like as in, how? Yeah, I can't imagine anyone going into a project with, of that length and that size and st- having a plan from the start and sticking to it. I almost feel like you're missing out because a part of it is you learning as you go, like about what you're doing. So, yeah, because like how long? How long does it end up being the thesis? Mine, mine was ninety thousand words, um, okay. and, and solid. <laughs> yeah, um, but you know, at the end of it, they were not getting one word more from me. Uh, I felt like uh, a lot of people have to cut down their theses. Not me. I was, I was, uh, I was writing up to the to the to the ninety thousand words. You know, really? Did you start like adding in lots of extra sentences you didn't need? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I thought about my thesis. Much as the authors themselves thought about them writing these, I uh, should have done that. I had, I had a, I had a long acknowledgement section. I thought that was tempting fate a bit. 
Just adding in, just everyone. You're like my local kebab guy. He really got me through some tough times. Uh, I know someone who, in their thesis, thanked the person who made them bubble tea. So you're not the first person to try to get that, to get that last, that last extra half thousand words. Just did you um actually to jump around a bit though, because I I realized I forgot to focus on this. But like getting a scholarship to Oxford is that hard? <laughs> it sounds hard. I was very fortunate to be honest. Um, there are a few international, you know, there's a few scholarships that uh, either go based on the faculty or based on mine was on the country of origin. And yeah, there's three given that year. The thing is, is that. Is that it's kind of at some level you could anybody would have been anybody than the last fifty would have done very well. Uh, I just got lucky, I guess. Um, yeah, and especially with something as vague as people's opinion about a work that you're putting forward, you would assume, yeah. So I understand what you mean. Oh, absolutely. It just comes down to a committee, you know. I mean, like a job interview, the job could have gone to to anybody else. I just got lucky. I mean. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess, and uh, let, let's let's start with a book, and then we'll go back and forth from there. Just kind of uh, hearing a bit more about you. So, so your book of choice. I didn't actually. I didn't clarify. You, I said you've got. You said two. So, which is the one you're going to go with for today? Which uh, let's let's talk about let's talk about the Ghost Rider, Philip Roth novel. Okay. Um, I have not read any Philip Roth myself. So, uh, looks you're going to have to convince me. <laughs> I think he's done enough work to convince the world he's a Pulitzer Prize winner. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, was this 27 novels or something? I'm not even sure how many it was. It was a lot. Yeah, it's a good novel. I mean, he's he's a writer who uh, maybe needs to be a bit careful, but he's there's some really, really good novels. And there's also a few that are a bit mixed. Um, he's a writer who kind of tries to figure things out in his, in his writing. Um, I don't necessarily mean that he's avant-garde, but rather that he's experimenting with thoughts and you know, reflections and so on. And sometimes it kind of comes off very well and sometimes it doesn't. Uh, and I think this is just a novel where where he's reflecting on on his earlier... And he wrote this novel called Portnoy's Complaint. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's... Uh, yeah, that's a... I feel like that's a slang for... <laughs> it's used in certain things as a slang for uh, playing with yourself, I believe. Yeah, I mean, the novel is uh, a kind of 200-something page bit um, in which a uh, a character Portnoy is speaking to a, a therapist about his basically sex mania, um, and that novel was controversial, um, as well as gained him wrath at his huge acclaim. That was nineteen sixty nine. I was reading uh, something the other day that said that his advance for the book could I could have the numbers wrong. But it's something like as advanced for the book in today's dollars would be something like eight million US, or no, no, not as, sorry, his advance plus royalties. You know, so he became this really wealthy, kind of important public writer at that time, appealing to this mass public. Ten years earlier, he won the National Book Award for um, uh, for Goodbye Columbus, which is a volume of short stories and a novella, which also got public acclaim. Um, and was controversial, but for quite different reasons. It was uh, basically hated by a, a small group of, or a particular group of Jewish American public figures for putting, and they thought putting them at risk in some way. Um, and so he was getting criticised by th- those people and celebrated by kind of serious-minded Jewish American authors like Saul Bellow. Ten years later, he's uh, writing this this thing that, uh, you know, is kind of sex mania kind of stuff uh, has. Um, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of readers, uh, and so 
well, by the time you get to, to 1979, he's been through almost this two different authors um, who's been uh, loved and reviled for totally different reasons by the same and different people. And so now mm-hmm. he's kind of reflecting on his younger, more naive self. Um, and it's very funny. Yeah, right. So he's, he actually writes a lot of com- like not comedy, but like it's very funny, like intentionally the stuff he writes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And often funny because of the things that his characters can't see about themselves. There's a kind of floating irony which uh, becomes richer and darker as you as you read his work. As in like he just he actually gets better at even doing it? Is that what you mean? Like as in just he can really be incisive about how he kind of presents it. Right. Because I, yeah, I, did, I just remember when I was looking you up, you, you, your three main areas of interest, one of them was comedy. So I was actually going to ask you about that. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I'm writing on comedy at the moment or comic comic writing maybe rather than comedy itself one of the things that i became interested in during my phd was how uh, quite a few of the authors that i was looking at reading alongside roth had a connection with stand-up comedy jewish american stand-up comedy between 1930 and 1960 in the catskills mountain resorts um so bernard malamud wrote skits for comedians um susan sontag's parents actually met in the in the catskills um Saul Bellow was there at some point. I can't remember in what capacity. Maybe as a waiter. I can't. I can't remember now. Um, Roth watched a lot of stand-up comedy, and it comes through in their writing. And I just got interested in that because you have these quite highbrow novelists or novelists who are taken very seriously. They're watching often quite low comedy um, and loving it. You know, Henny Youngman, yeah. who's who's Roth's Roth talks about it endlessly. Henny Youngman is a is a stand-up comic youngman's most famous joke is appalling and it goes like this i mean don't you know i'm not even, i'm not gonna do it justice and it's not funny so um here you are it goes take my wife no really that's henny youngman um yeah yeah classic take my wife please yeah that, exactly exactly that's that's henny youngman yeah. and i just i, I just I got interested in that I, I i want to know kind of how this idea of seriousness that we have about literature, literature has got to be good and do things for the public and has all of these values and so on. And I'm as you know, liable to talk in those terms as anybody else. And then you have this other stuff, which is not that, uh, which these writers are all interested in and connected with. Right. Because it's interesting you're saying that because like, I think uh, to give a historical context for people so they can probably understand it, which have you seen The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel? Yes. It's on Amazon. Yeah, yeah. So I think that would already help people understand. But even that I think is a bit, um, it's a bit idolized. So, like, essentially, for anyone who's hearing this who isn't aware, from the 30s to the 60s, around about, probably a bit after, stand up comedy wasn't really stand up comedy like a lot of them might be thinking right now. It was very much that shorter, quippier bit stuff. So, it wasn't like a personal opinion or a personal story. It was more about. So, that's what I find interesting because what they would have been liking there is obviously it's very jokey back then. It was very, very much like, yes, take my wife, please. Ah, like, almost holding the cigar and stuff like that was a bit more of the type of comedy back then. So it was very uh, different to what people might picture now. Yeah, I mean, totally. But it's interesting. It's interesting you say that about, about you know, the development of stand-up comedy and the emergence of the comic as a, I don't know what you'd say, reflexive autobiographical comic, the kind of thing that we're more, so, you know, more familiar with now. I had a friend who in London who works with stand-up comics um, and said – it's very difficult now to find a comic who doesn't want to break down the wall, you know, sort of uh, break down the walls of 
themselves or whatever. They're kind of endless Stuart Lee wannabes. And I thought that was really interesting because, yeah, the 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 the, the, the moment that I'm looking at is very jokey and less amenable actually to the more high treatment that maybe we're more used to now. I think people like me are quite likely to watch quite a lot of stand-up comedy and quite enjoy it. Uh, I think the period I'm looking at, um, it really was more like a mass form. As you said, Netflix has targeted, you know, has learned how to sort of target different demographics to segment quite successfully. And so stand-up comedy has this new audience, but back then you couldn't, it wasn't quite like that. So you had, you know, people go to the resorts in the, in the Catskills Mountains. They watch these jokes, have dinner, have a few drinks. That's kind of the mo- that moment in comedy. Yeah, yeah. So basically, like we're trying to say, is uh, it, it had to appeal to a mass audience. It couldn't be segmenting to a specific type. So you're you almost left. Your only course of action was to go to more basic simplistic i want to say like i don't want to dismiss it like even though i think we have evolved from it so i don't think it's a it's it's gotten better and i think you can still find those jokey elements but like yeah back then when people think of stand-up comedy now it's not back then it was just much more it was almost one of the things it was was anyone could do anyone else's bits it wasn't like you really had an individual voice back then you were just a person doing jokes so and you could get very good at that and there are people that were good at it, but that, that's what it was back then. So that's why I just didn't hear saying how like Philip Roth and someone like that appreciate it because I guess part of it was the jokiness of it, essentially. I mean, it's interesting that in, in, in that show, in, in The Marvelous Mr. Maisel, you have Lenny Bruce as a kind of hero figure almost. I mean, more complicated than that, but um, because in a way he is far more, we understand him as a figure of what a comedian is now more than we might understand Henny Youngman. Definitely. I think, in a, and it's always interesting seeing these guys and looking, it's it's fun. I, I don't know. I'm a, I'm a bit of a comedy geek with that stuff, but it's interesting seeing a lot of comics, uh, maybe not now, but generally generations past. How many of them started off doing more jokey, your classic old school style before they developed and found their voice and became this new thing? So even Lenny Bruce, I think he fell into that. He started off doing more styles and characters and then he slowly developed into becoming this iconic person railing against the system that everyone knows him as now so but i still like i uh, appreciate the jokey elements and the characters and the act outs i always like that element i think it adds more color to a performance when it's got more of that stuff going on yeah uh, i mean i you know i haven't been able to watch any comedy recently of course sadly um i wonder about how we're in a kind of meta moment you know i have written a book about meta fiction yeah and that means that I see it everywhere. Of course I do. You you can't not. You know, people who are classicists see the reception of the classics everywhere. People who are Egyptologists, you know, see the reception of Egyptology in our in our culture. But one of the things that yeah. I see, I think, when I think about comedy, is I see often a very meta relationship with uh with the comic that develops. And I know part of that is to do with um uh, to do with the fact that it's a profession and so you actually have to know what's funny and why and you have to keep on sharpening it and sharpening it and sharpening it to get it right. But also, you know, there is something about risk and um, and sometimes sometimes it can t- there's a, a way of almost insuring against risk when you when you seem to know what you're do- you seem to know what you're doing. Yeah. And I sometimes when I'm watching a comedy, I think to myself, own it. Do the risky thing. Don't be meta about it. I don't know if that's an insane view to have, but it's 
it's something. I think it's something particular to comedy, actually, more than it is to to literary writing or you know anything else. You think? Like, as in, in terms. So, what you're saying right now, essentially, whatever you're doing, do it 100. percent Like, as in, if you're doing any commitment, having any opinion, having any view, don't go halfway with it. Own it completely and don't back down from it at all. I think it's often that comics comics will worry about. It's a bit more than that. I think comic comics can often kind of be. Um, they're aware, you know, you can feel their awareness of what they're doing when they're doing it. And that sometimes to me, I want actually the more dangerous thing. Right, 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 right. Okay, no, you, now we're speaking to something which I, uh, I, I think I know what you mean. Um, I always think of it in terms of, um, this is jumping, jumping complete art fields, but uh, I call it like the winking to camera. Yeah, yeah, that's what like, I'm talking like about. that. Yeah, yeah. So the idea where, like, I, I, and this is like one of the things I hate most about, like, the Marvel movie thing, where it's like, oh, we know that we're doing this thing, even as we do it, and so no one ever like commits a hundred percent to just being that thing. They're always like, got to be self aware at the same time and be like, oh, look at me. It's like, look at me doing this thing. So yeah, if that's what you mean, I hundred percent agree. Um, it, because it is, it's a safer, safer place to be, like, to be acting like that rather than just committing to whatever you're thing is so yeah no i i it, it is riskier though it's definitely risky oh absolutely yeah, um, yeah. one of the thing one of the, the the novels that does this best is um david grossman's a horse walks into a bar which is uh i don't know if you've read it it's a, mm-hmm. a stand-up comic giving a comedy performance over you know 200 pages no no chapter breaks this kind of uh very quickly accelerating novel um, it's in Israel. He, this this guy is on on tour. So he's invited somebody there, two people it seems, and trying to read the tone of the novel is so hard um, because you can't read the tone of the performance. Is he performing a woundedness on stage, the the comic in front of these people, um, and or is he is he doing some kind of a bit? And we just don't really know and then you have those quite kind of traditional jewish jokes that sit in the middle of it and so tonally the novel moves all around in these very uncomfortable places and it's quite masterful in the way that it's doing it and and so the winking to camera as you called it doesn't quite happen in the same way and it's um uh i mean it's it makes the experience reading really um uh well somewhere between uh, funny and deeply punishing. Which is a great place to be. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's, that's okay. So, no, 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 yeah, look, we could talk geek out about this comedy stuff all day, honestly. I, I, I love it. But to get to... A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So, but so, I guess... We started off with this when you were saying how Philip Roth and these authors had an, which people wouldn't expect, an appreciation of, as we've now clarified in very great detail, the 30s to 60s style of stand-up comedy, which is the very much more mass appeal, lowbrow, basic sort of jokes and joke structure. Um, and did you did you feel you saw an impact of that in their work, or you were just like, oh, that's an interesting, that's an interesting thing, but you don't really see it. I sort of, um, yeah, I guess I sort of knew that it was somewhere in the background and I just kind of observed little bits and pieces and then parked it and then I've come back to it now um, as an interesting thought. And I guess as you turn things up, you see more and more connections. I guess one of the, the direction of my work at the moment is more into Jewish studies, Jewish literary studies, and this is one kind of element of that. Um, histories of Jewish jokes and things like that are more are also part of what I'm interested in and looking at. <laughs> oh wow, you're, you're <laughs> next level geekiness. All right, <laughs> history of Jewish jokes. Is it um, why is it specifically the Jewish uh, area you're interested in? Is there any personal reason, or is it just you found that interesting? Um, bit of both, but it's more. I mean, it does. This comes out of my research, to be uh, mostly um, that you know. You, I worked on Roth. I, I was really interested in the writers and the people that he was interacting with, and. Um, and I guess it kind of went a bit from there. And also just sometimes it's really funny. Yeah. I mean, they, they, they can write. <laughs> Jewish, these Jewish writers, they can be very, very funny. That's, yeah. I have this, I have this thing about how, how critics often struggle with comedy. Um, it's hard to write about. Comedy is hard to write about. Uh, and when I think about why I tell someone to read a novel or why I, you know, why I enjoyed a novel. Sometimes it's just because it's something that can be really funny. And I just, I guess I, that, kind of drew me in and then and then some you know some of the histories of some of the jewish jokes that i have heard both kind of since i've been doing this research and in my life um are profound in the way that um a poem can be profound you know they have an intelligence to them that i find really enriching and i i want to think more about that I mean, that's, uh, again, I don't want to go pulling my own thing of how, oh, yeah, stand-up comedy is so beautiful, but uh, <laughs> comedy, it's so sweet. But, like, I agree with, like, the sense that a good a good joke is like a good poem in terms of, like, you're trying to say way more than what is being said in as short of amount as possible. So the shorter you can do it, the more – and the more you can hit different things. So people are like, oh, wow, that's saying this and it's commenting on that and it's commenting on that. That's impressive. Like, that's, I think, a combination between the two. So, yeah, I know, I know what you mean when you say that. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, there's there's one that I I really love, which is um, Jews just like everybody else, only more so, and that the compression of that joke is so wonderful because it's so short, and yeah, there's there's so much kind of love in that in that joke if you if you know the target. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because it goes it goes both ways. It's like mm-hmm. anxiety riddled and clever. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Um, so, 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 so you, you have yourself no history of like 
Jewishness in your family or anything like that? It is just like a academic interest, I guess, in that sense. Uh, no, I do. My father's Jewish. Not many, not many of them in a small town, New Zealand, but uh, he is. Uh, <laughs> That's going to say, <laughs> going up in New Zealand, right? Hmm. Um, so is that like, uh, did does he kind of was sharing of his history? So that's what kind of got you started interested in it, or not really? But then you felt that connection later, maybe. Bit of both. Um, as I said, uh, it's kind of an academic. You know, there, there are personal interests and academic interests, and sometimes it's hard to disentangle them. You know, I read I read Roth, and and I found his writing really appealed to me at some level. And I read the other writers, and they were, their writing appealed to me. But partly that is also because, you know, they're thinking about di- diasporic lives, um, the legacies of the Holocaust, things that uh, that resonate with me for 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 one reason or another. Yeah, no, that's uh, I mean that makes perfect sense. I don't know, it can be hard to disentangle because it's like. Obviously, the given is it's good, like in terms of the writing and stuff with all this stuff. Because, like, I mean, I'll give a very dumb personal reason. Greek background. So, if anything's Greek, I am right there for it. (laughs) I'm all for it. But it doesn't mean I'm going to be anything. But if it's good and there's lots of good things in the world, if it's Greek, that probably might put it over the edge because it might actually speak to my own experience slightly more. Um, Although, funnily enough, that actually does make uh, the appeal of Jewishness in many ways – like their writers and their story about diasporic stuff and all that sort of things. There's, there's a lot of correlation between the two. So I understand uh, how it can be hard to disentangle. Did you, um, do you like that, uh, that Greek um, filmmaker, the one who did the lobster and um, just, do you know, you know the one I'm talking about? Yorgos Lanthimos. Yeah. 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 Oh, I know. Oh, oh, oh I don't know. <laughs> do you like it? Um, I thought, uh, so have you seen all of So there's, the lobster and the killing of a sacred deer, and then he got he won an Oscar for the favorite, which was the more recent one. Yes, I've only seen the favorite and the lobster. So they're both better. The killing of a sacred deer was a bit heavy handed and not as good. Lobster, I loved. I thought that was fantastic. Like it was so weird. Mm. So mm. and like just the way he writes and everything, I thought it was very, very unique, but also like engaging and interesting. So yeah, and no, I thought it was yeah, I loved lobster was. I, I actually thought I thought the impressive, thing, and this this might relate to other things. Again, I haven't read any Philip Roth, but I feel like sometimes when people do interesting, strange, new things, which maybe you wouldn't think are very mass sellable, sometimes it ends up actually still being something which everyone can enjoy, and other times it doesn't. Which doesn't mean it's bad; it just means maybe it's more focused, or whatever. So I thought the Lobster was kind of that, where it's like it's doing something which I think any like arts. People who are very versed in cinema would look at it and be like, oh, look at it. That's very clever what it's doing, da, da, da. But then I thought it was actually, at the same time, quite palatable for everyone to enjoy, which, uh, yeah, I don't know if that's kind of something you feel with these other work writers or something. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm no film, you know, geek. Um, I watch a few films and, uh, um, you know, I enjoyed I enjoyed The Lobster a lot, but I sort of feel like, you know, my, my, my taste in films is not... Not particularly advanced. <laughs> but I guess what I remember is like, so, but in terms of the writers that you like, you probably get that as well, right? Because, I mean, it's the classic thing. It's like everyone, I think there's a joke about it in like The Simpsons or whatever. It's like as soon as anyone who d- delves too deeply into a topic, eventually they get very weird. <laughs> it's like the Beatles. It's like it just gets so strange that the majority of people are going to have no idea what's going on because that's all that's left after you've gone, you've done it all to such a degree. So I think when those when someone who's still that far out there can still be appealing to the the masses, I guess I could put it that way. That's always an interesting 
like achievement, I guess. And I think it's something really interesting about the writers that I look at is the way is the ways that they're popular. I mean, um, the writers from my book were, um, you know, two of them. One won a Nobel Prize. Philip Roth is enormously popular and you know contested and discussed. Uh, but the other writers I look at. Um, uh, Jane Kitsia and, and Frame, this is in the book, uh, and Kitsia has won a Nobel Prize and has a kind of established critical reputation and quite a, you know, a strong readership, uh, even though he writes difficult, forbidding things. Spear prose can sometimes be quite hard to tell uh, as a, if you were to come in afresh to Kitsia's writing what's going on, um, especially in the, the most recent novels, but still you know, a real seller. And then Janet Frame, who... Public appeal was not at the same level. She did sell a lot of books, uh, in particular her autobiographies, um, but not on the same scale as the other writers that I have talked about. And I think it's interesting that the ways that they deal with their publics, yeah, that um, that uh, sometimes you know Roth is a writer who's absolutely obsessed with literary form and tries to uh, write some things that are quite experimental. Um, but has this mass readership. Could see her actually not, uh, you know, very, very interested in literary theory and politics and all these kind of things. Also, and, and the history of um, of the novel, but it still has this mass readership. Where I think Frame, who is is difficult and writes these really interesting novels, um, never quite managed to crack the same scale of popularity. It takes a lot of attention and a lot of time to to. Uh, appreciate her work, I think. Right. Okay. So it's just that's the example of going that little bit further than, uh, yeah. Which is not, again, there's nothing absolutely wrong with that. You write to the skill that you like, and yeah, if people, if you're lucky enough to have people come along on that journey, I guess that's that's a win. <laughs> so, so the other book you were considering doing was, uh, I had a quick look at it. This, uh, what was the title of it again? It was uh, the Anatomy Lesson by Philip Roth. Is um, is a kind of is another one of his Zuckerman fictions, which is he's this kind of author surrogate, um, except it takes some of the materials from the ghostwriter, which is a, about the naivety of the young Philip Roth or the young Nathan Zuckerman being confronted by these hostile readers and doing all these kind of crazy things. Um, this time he goes even, even further, even crazier. Um, yeah. It's interesting. Cause like uh, there is, it's funny that you don't like comedians being winking at the camera and meta when so much of your appreciation is of these meta genres. Cause like, as in it's such a, it's almost like you want people to be meta, but not actually from a emotionally distant point of view. I guess that's one way of putting it. I don't know. Like, as in if not from a point of view of like, Oh, look at how like, I, that's, you get, you get what I mean when I'm saying is, and it's an interesting two things you've got going on. So I'm trying to actually, connect that somehow i'm not sure like it feels like maybe there's a default there's a default move to be reflexive in a certain kind of stand-up maybe that's what i'm saying um Mm. and what's interesting about this roth novel or these roth novels is that well the in the ghostwriter for example he has this this character who's very much like somebody that he a famous novelist uh, bernard malamud um falling in love with somebody that who is Anne Frank, uh, having an affair with Anne Frank post-war, you know. And so here was Philip Roth accused of being anti-Semitic <laughs> and accused of all these things. And then we have, ah, no, 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 don't worry. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to marry Anne Frank. 
and <laughs> and the temperature just turns up on this, yeah. So yes, he's aware of it's himself. It's like he was trying to start. It's like he's trying to start a fight. Yeah, exactly what that is. It's exactly what that is. But as the temperature goes up, it gets <laughs> funnier and more more intense. It begins to become a novel that kind of motivates something. Um, and and the same with the anatomy lesson, which is really a strange work. But I mean, you know, it's not a novel for everyone. It's pretty, pretty, yeah. You know, it's it's, it's a particular move. But I just found that move in these novels. The first time I read them, I just found it um, uh, alarming and right. and funny. Yeah. yeah, that's yeah, that's a good comment. Again, tension and all that stuff. Is that um? Would you say Ghost Rider something people could read and actually enjoy, like in general, rather than yeah, it's not it's not too far out. <laughs> no, no, I think it's uh, this is a it's a it's kind of a short thing. It's, it's quite. I think I think people. Is that your recommended Roth? Yeah, if that, I was going to read anything first. I'd say read the Ghost Rider. I think it's a, a nice, a nice novel. You know, read uh, right. read that. Maybe Goodbye Columbus for a start. Those those are two good works to get going on. Yeah. Um, okay. The, so, well, firstly, growing up, were you like? I'm guessing you always were a huge reader and very much into books and all that your whole childhood. Did you find yourself gravitating towards these like meta narratives later as you grew and developed yourself, or was it something you always kind of found interesting? Um, when I was when I was a kid, I kind of just read whatever I was given. You know, um, read a lot of crime fiction, which um, you know it's quite fun. When I was at high school, I just sort of trusted my teachers and what they were giving me and enjoyed enjoyed the poems and novels and plays that we read um so i think it's kind of came later and also you know it's it's oddly for me it feels now like something i've i've done um i've written my book books out uh and i don't have to sort of you know that 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 interest which was really quite uh you know dominated parts of my 20s now i'm i've sort of moved on i've said i've said my piece now thankfully and um and I'm moving on to other things. Was this the first book or the uh, the recent one you just released? The one I just published. Yeah, well, academic publishing is um, slow. What's uh, what makes it like? How do you mean? I guess it's just the timelines just take a long time. You know, you you submit a draft, you get a feedback from the readers, maybe from the press and from the readers, maybe six months to a year later, you might have a year or two to revise. You you, you do your revisions, goes back might take another six months for those revisions to be accepted and then you might have another six months before it comes out so often when when you when an academic publishes a book they might have already sort of been done with it a year or a year and a half earlier sometimes it's just taking forever yeah yeah so so that's and that's and that's this year it's come out so now you're free now you can do something new i am i mean free you know maybe a bit a bit hopeful but um uh, i uh, yeah i'm working on working on new stuff working on new material the tour's finished, you know? <laughs> exactly. That's all I can relate. I know. <laughs> it's usually not this multi-year one like that, but I get it. Um, yeah, because I, I, I saw your other interests when I was looking you up was World War Two and uh, colonialism and post-colonialism through the lens of literature as well. Like, But uh, is, it, is that something you want to focus on a bit more now or is that kind of – It's something I've been – something I'm continuing to write about. I guess I've been doing these two things in parallel with each other that I've been working on. Uh, articles, chapters, hopefully on comedy, and I'm also uh, writing about um, colonial uh, and post-colonial fiction um, and poems. Uh, 
So just to clarify, when you say colonial and post-colonial, are you just literally referring to the time the time or that yeah. specific year yeah. that country with like a, a certain focus of literature at that point or is it literally anything that was out at that time? I, I mean, I'm just, I, I guess I'm looking at particular places and times. Um, so, you know, maybe the Car- maybe pre-independence Caribbean poetry or novels, or maybe post-independence uh, Caribbean something stuff from the Pacific, you know, that's, yeah, it, it's, it's to do with the locations and, and the moments in their political yeah. history. Yeah. It seems like your, your areas of interest, uh, do seem to coincide quite a lot with you, you know, with your Jewish par- uh, father and then having issues there. And then you're in New Zealand, obviously a colonialized country, <laughs> a colonized country. And you're like, Oh, I could just happen to like these, 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 these areas. <laughs> yeah. It's funny, isn't it? I, I never thought of it that way, but I think it's probably that you're, your life and education and training and you know experience gives you um, gives you certain kind of things that you can choose to work with or not. And in my case, I was quite happy working with them. I mean, you know, some people from my background become historians in medieval Europe. You know, um, uh, but yeah, I just I guess yeah, that's, <laughs> I guess that's kind of what I was what I was given, and I feel. Um, I just sort of sustains my interest, maybe. Mm. And look, I think it's a uh, there's some evergreen topics there. Uh, yeah, especially the impact. I mean, post-colonialism technically is forever. <laughs> Everything's yeah. post-colonial, but uh, yeah, the the it's a long yeah. There's long fingers to that thing. I think so. Is there a distinct change in po- colonial versus post-colonial like work? So I guess when we talk about that, we're talking again. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it would be like. But essentially, before independent, like an example would be like India before independence versus after independence. Is that kind of what you mean by post-colonial, or is it? Yeah, um, depends where you're talking about. But um, right. often at the moments of independence, there's quite a focus on what it means to be a nation. That's a really interesting question, and so the writing might reflect those. Might be interested in those questions. That could be one quite practical, quite specific change in the kind of mood of a novel. Or mood of a hmm. sorry mood of a of a nation's literary history. Yeah, I mean, like uh, I'm just thinking straight away. I'm like, oh yeah, because I mean, if Australia became a republic tomorrow, or New Zealand for that matter, but like uh, obviously I'm Australian, so I'm just referring to that. But like, yeah, you'd expect a lot, a lot of literature trying to figure out. <laughs> wait, who are we? Like, <laughs> there'd be so and, much and questions, which I don't even know who we are, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, this this is this is one of the big questions is uh, how settlers i mean i'm specifically using settlers rather than australia or new zealand when i say this uh mm. how they handle their sense of who they are and how that might be distinctive um and and it's vexed um for them you know new zealand's literary nationalist movement is at once pakeha and settler and at the same time trying to differentiate itself from the project of colonization i mean unsuccessfully because it's doing a different form of colonization but those those issues in the in the what's this sorry what was that you were mentioning then um new zealand kind of settler writing from between about 1930 and about 1970 right okay i mean it's maybe 1960 um it's yeah it's just a curious problem that you have these writers who want to be new zealanders but also they are settlers and representatives of the colonial state in one way or another. Um, and so often there's writing about feeling uneasy on the land or um, 
or trying to define who they are as, as a distinctive entity. It's not always not always comfortable writing or reading. Yeah. I mean, people have a tendency to avoid to go ahistorical when they don't want to confront it. <laughs> Just yeah, yeah. Like look, uh, it's a very rich topic, so I can understand why you'd find it a uh, engaging to look into more. I guess I should probably we should probably close off there. Yeah. I mean, I guess uh, the only question I usually ask is uh did you f- find any new connections between yourself and the novel i guess in our conversation <laughs> considering your you've written a thesis on it i don't <laughs> I'm not gonna uh, hold my breath. yeah but also the way that you the way that you've made me think about comedy and sort of why i'm interested in stuff uh and my re- my reaction to certain kinds of comic strategies and yeah that um that has made me rethink a little bit my relationship with with the specific things that i enjoy about that novel and yeah so i guess the answer is yes oh okay well okay i'm glad i could help in that sense oh cool well anyways thanks for being on and uh yeah uh we'll look for i actually one last thing do you want to give a shout out to anything do you have any uh (laughs) should anyone go buy one of your books or something wouldn't force that on anybody (laughs) um (laughs) all right all right well thanks very much for being on thanks cheers Thanks for listening. If you want to help support this show and all the other shows we do here at Sans Pants Radio, then why not subscribe to SansPantsPlus.com? For as little as $5 a month, you can have access to a whole bunch of bonus shows and content. Once again, that's SansPantsPlus.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu dot com code GLOW.